join me in the book of Romans, chapter number 14. Book of Romans, chapter number 14. Um, we're going to do our best to hunker down in this chapter, in about 12 verses of it, maybe 13 verses of it tonight, as we continue this series that we've been doing on Sundays and Wednesdays. I almost never do a series of sermons that utilizes both the midweek service and the Sunday service. But this is just where my heart is right now, Pastor Dustin's heart is, as we are sinking our teeth into the theology and to the reality of the unity in the body of Christ. And because we believe that as Jesus prayed and as Paul declared that we are one church, that's all Christians everywhere in the world, present, past, and future, all in Jesus, we represent one church. Some of that representation is in heaven right now, those that have gone on before us in Christ. Some of it is currently here on earth, and some of it is not yet here, that literally there will be little souls wrapped in little bodies that will be born into this world that will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And when God looks at it from beginning to end, he says, you're all one. And so because of that, we have been doing a couple of things in this series. We have been tearing down some walls that divide us because God didn't build those walls, we did. And we've also been seeking to lay a foundation that we can build anew upon, that we believe that this is a season, uh, prophetically speaking, um, practically speaking, where God is fusing together his children in a way that has been unprecedented in my Christian experience, and we're seeing it everywhere. I, let me tell you the first thing I saw this morning. Well, maybe not the first thing, but the first thing I, my mind wrapped around this morning after I got showered and left the house, I opened up my phone and there was an email from a pastor in our area and he is part of a denomination that does not affirm the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he has been ambushed by the Holy Spirit the same way that I was as a Baptist pastor in the year 2003, February of 2003. And he knows enough about what happened in, in our church where we merged a word church and a spirit church and became New Bridge. And he said, I've found that the Bible doesn't teach what I was always taught about the gifts. And then he said this, and by the way, and he mentioned the guy's name, he says, in essence, he says, shh, don't tell anybody, but there's two of us and we'd really like to meet with you and help hope you can explain what's going on with us. And I just think that's so awesome, friends. I think it's so good that the Lord is not intimidated by the walls that we build, these walls of theology, bad theology and, and, and denominations to where He's not intimidated by them, but he, he really wants all of us to experience all of him that we possibly can. And so um, Pastor Dustin on Sunday met with two other pastors in a city about 45 minutes north of here. And they are also from a denomination that does not affirm or practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they contacted Dustin and said, could you meet with us on Sunday? And Pastor Dustin spent two and a half hours with them after service on Sunday. And these are two pastors up there. So listen, 
it's either coincidence or it's God. I just, by faith, say it's God. Amen. It's just awesome what's going on. And so what's happening? The Lord is choosing to press in. I mean, the Bible is still true. If you draw near to him, he's going to draw near to you. And so God is willing to honor the most imperfect mustard seed of faith that we can lay before him. And if we can be honest and say, Lord, I don't understand all of this. I don't know what I believe in this area, but I know that my heart is yearning for more of of a personal relationship with you. I I don't want to just read about you. I want to experience you. And and I think if we can just pray honest prayers like that, the, the Lord in essence says, oh, I can bless that. I can, you're drawing near to you. You are such a precious daughter. You're drawing near to me. I'm going to draw near to you. And we take one of our puny little steps towards him, and he takes a God-sized step toward us, and awesome things happen. So that has nothing to do with what I'm going to preach tonight, but I really just wanted to share that because I just am excited about what the Lord is doing. Tonight, I'm going to teach again. We taught on Sunday. Um, I hope that you are... Can I throw this down here? Let me... Renee, will you catch that and just... There we go. Thank you. I'm afraid it'll go. Did I hit you in the face with that? Be healed. Amen. Sorry, brother. We're a little bit looser on Wednesday nights. If you're looking for the professional church, it's down the road a piece. But tonight, uh, we're just going, we're going to teach through this passage of Scripture. Without overstating it, I, I do want to say something about Romans 14 and 15. I spent the better part of two years studying these two chapters in God's Word about, about 18 years ago. I was trained theologically by mentors and by school that one of the most important things we can do as Christians is separate from other Christians with whom we do not agree perfectly. I was taught that. I was trained that. They used Bible verses to support that. And so at a very young, impressionable age as a pastor or a a junior pastor on staff, I was getting all sorts of inundation from different sources that said, be careful of this group of people because they believe this. Be careful of this group of Christians because they believe this. You don't need to fellowship with this group of Christians because here's the kind of music that they use in their worship services. And you don't want to go here because they use this translation of Scripture. And so what I was trying to do for a few years right after I was called to preach is I'm trying to figure out what all the rules are. And just as I would master one person's set of rules, another person of influence would come onto my life, and he would add four more rules and then take away two of the rules that the other guy said. And what I learned, it was very heartbreaking. What I learned is, oh, nobody has a standard for any of this stuff. Every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And so I learned very early that there is this tendency in Christians to to ornament God's truth with our own little things that we like to hang on it. And so it was disheartening to me, but hallelujah, this is the wonderful thing about studying the scriptures. If you will just become a student of your Bible and you will pray a simple prayer every time you open it to read it, Holy Spirit, I come to the Bible in faith, speak to me, I believe I can hear you. And if you will do that consistently over a period of time, you'll become wise and you won't be as susceptible to all of these man-made rules and all of these things that we disagree upon. Tonight, I want to bring you a message called Directions for our disagreements, because it's unavoidable. As believers, there's going to be times when we disagree with each other. But the Bible actually teaches us that if we're going to fight, how to fight fairly. 
And that's something that Christians have not been good at historically. We're allowed to disagree with each other over non-biblical issues, but we are never allowed to have those disagreements undermine our, un- undermine our unity and our love for each other. So let's let the scriptures speak from Romans 14. Romans 14.1, Paul says to the church at Rome, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. To this end, Christ died, and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. One of the things that you may not know about kingdom leadership is that before too long, you find out that part of your job description is that you're a referee. You have to referee between groups of Christians. That's just part of it. Most of us were not prepared for that in our education or our training. And when we are first uh, made aware that we're called as a shepherd to keep the sheep from butting heads with each other, it, it becomes all the more important that we learn how to do it. The reality is this, because we're different and because the Bible, you need to get this, The Bible does not specifically address every questionable issue in life. The Bible does not give a prohibition, nor does the Bible give a promise or a commandment to every issue in life. The Bible actually leaves a little bit of gray area. I remember there was a time in my idealistic life where I literally said in a sermon one time, there are no gray areas in life. That's a young 25-year-old's way of thinking. There absolutely are areas. And the, the challenge for the believer is this. When two Christians disagree on an area where the Bible does not specify what is right or what is it wrong, the test is this. Who's going to be the first to outlove the other? 
That is the test. Who will be the first to outlove the other? Paul is showing us in Romans 14 and 15 through a couple of illustrations what it looks like to come to terms with these things that we disagree upon. Now, you're going to be thinking of things in your life during this message that are very important to you, very important. They're high standards that you hold in your heart, but you're also aware that you may not exactly have a lot of scripture to support those high standards, but nonetheless, they're very important to you. And I will tell you right off the bat, you should hold to those standards. If those are convictions that you have in the Lord, you should hold to those standards. But here's what we're not allowed to do. We're not allowed to take our uh, convictions or our standards that aren't supported by Scripture and lay those standards on another and expect that person to live up to our standards. That's where we get in trouble. And so we're going to grow together as we pass through this passage of Scripture tonight. It's not complicated, but I'm going to tell you, again, not overstating it, this chapter over about an 18-month period, this chapter in the beginning of chapter 15, revolutionized my Christian life. It set me free from legalism. It set me free from being constantly frustrated with people that didn't live up to my expectations. And it also allowed me the ability not to panic when I wasn't living up to somebody else's expectations in these areas of of, uh, questionable um, or, or, or liberty is what we'll call it. These areas where the Bible gives you the freedom to make up your own mind. So I hope I've got your curiosity peaked. Let's look at the actual scripture tonight. And let's start in the first four verses. Starts off in low gear, but let's look at Paul's instruction concerning Christian liberty. And we're going to start out with these, these opposing metaphors. The first one is this the welcome mat versus the wrestling mat. Verse number one. Here Paul begins and he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now just pause there. Paul in these two chapters is setting up two different types of Christians. One he calls the weaker brother. And it also includes female, but the weaker brother and the stronger brother. Now, let me define these very quickly for you. As they're revealed in Scripture, you're going to find out that the weaker brother is somebody, the weaker Christian is somebody who sincerely and strongly holds to traditions, ceremonies, and external guidelines as the expression of their true devotion to Jesus Christ. These people live with great care to ensure that their invisible faith is visibly lived out in front of others. Their conscience does not regularly allow them to enjoy the same freedoms that the stronger brothers and sisters enjoy. Their disciplines and their traditions are are part of the means by which they express their sincere worship of Jesus. Now listen, the, the weaker brother, brethren often feel like the stronger brethren because they have such high standards on their own behavior. But the Bible says that in essence, that those things can serve as crutches. And so it's not a slight on these people, but it's a description that their, phrase, their faith is somewhat more fragile. And so therefore, they go to great lengths to protect it from anything that might be in their mind against their scruples. The stronger brother is just the opposite. These are those who easily and gratefully enjoy the complete freedom which is provided to them in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They recognize their full deliverance from external, traditional, and ceremonial practices 
which others may employ as part of their faith. These people, the stronger brethren, they honor Christ by living devotedly to him while they exercise their gracious privilege of living above any traditions that are not specified in Scripture. Now, I know that's a lot of words, but it's important you understand because Paul's about to talk about the weaker brother and the stronger brother. So back to the welcome mat versus the, the wrestling mat. Here's what Paul says. He's writing to the strong church, the strong Christians in Rome, and he's saying to them, I want you to welcome the weaker Christians. I want you to put out the welcome mat for those whose traditions are important to them that their preferences may not necessarily be biblical, but they're very important to them, and I want you to welcome them. And then he adds this, but don't put out the wrestling mat. I don't want you to try to wrestle them and quarrel with them and argue with them. What is he talking about there? He's been around long enough to know this, that when strong Christians who don't need all of the ceremony, they don't need all of the tradition, they don't need all of the extra uh, guardrails on their faith, when they meet the weaker Christians to whom those traditions and preferences and standards are very important, they help those people feel closer to Jesus, Paul says, I'm going to put the onus on the stronger Christian to prefer the younger Christian. In other words, don't welcome them into the fellowship and then try to get them to get rid of all of their standards to get rid of all of their preferences. I want you to welcome them, but not for the purpose of setting them straight. And so that's the very first thing that he opens up with in the first verse. Now, let's unpack it a little bit. What does that actually look like? Well, he's going to talk here in these next couple of verses about the free conscience versus the fragile conscience, because these are matters not of Scripture, but of being guided as a Christian by what your conscience is telling you. And so some people have a free conscience. They don't need rules. They don't need extra stuff. They don't need all the standards. They don't need all the disciplines. They don't need all the traditions. Their conscience is free. They're never worried about playing by somebody else's rules. But then the fragile conscience, well, let's look at the verses. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Do not let the one who eats despise the one who abstains from eating, and don't let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, what in the world is, is that all about? In the early church, a lot of these people were saved in the Roman Empire out of paganism. And part of pagan worship was that they would sacrifice their dinner to their pagan idols. So in other words, if you're eating chicken that night, Part of what they would do is they'd go and grab a chicken, they'd go to a pagan altar, they would pray to a pagan god, and they would kill the chicken and let the blood spill on that pagan altar. Not really pleasant, but that's what they did. And then they would take the remains of that chicken and they would cook it and they would eat it. And so when some of these people got saved, they came to faith in Jesus Christ, they recognized that most of the meat in the city had been offered to a pagan god and their conscience was not free to eat any meat because they were afraid if I eat meat that was sacrificed in the marketplace by the, market, by the shop owner and he sacrificed it to a pagan god and I bring that meat back to my house and I cook it, I'm eating an, a defiled piece of meat. And so what was, their, what was their answer to that? They ran to the opposite extreme and they said, we won't eat any meat anywhere because their conscience would not allow them to do that. Then you've got some other people that said, hey, I don't care anything about that. Jesus set me free. I'm cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Hallelujah. Get me a burger. 
You know, that was basically their attitude. They're like, I'm going to have me some steak, man. I'm going to have some chicken. I want some wings. They probably, if they were Hebrew, wouldn't eat pork, but they'd eat just about anything. And their conscience was never ruffled by the idea of the possibility of eating something that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, here's the deal. When the church would come together, part of their worship on a weekly basis is they would eat together. So all of a sudden, this problem becomes manifest because it's the church fellowship mealtime. And they're coming together, and the one Christian with a fragile conscience ain't about to eat any of that meat, but lo and behold, there comes a woman across the room, and she goes straight for the lamb chops. And she's got it on her plate, and she's eating it, she's laughing, she's free, and all of a sudden, you've got two believers, and they're not real comfortable with each other. And the fragile conscience wants the free conscience to adopt her ways. And the free conscience is saying, why don't you loosen up a little bit? Have a burger and be quiet and sit down. It's all good. And that kind of atmosphere created friction in the church. Now, here's my question. Who's right and who's wrong? The answer is both of them were saved. They're doing exactly opposite things, coming to exact opposite conclusions about the same issue, and both of them think they're right. And so if I'm right and you're doing the opposite, then I think you're wrong. So the test was, how would they relate with each other? Now, hang in there. Let me show you this. Recognizing each type is important. It's very simple. The first one, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person only eats vegetables. The second thing, this is the most important part, how do you respond to each type? Well, let me tell you what the dangers are. The free person will be tempted to look down on the fragile. That's what Paul says. He says, don't let the one who eats despise the one who abstains. That's the temptation for people that are free. They look at others and they think, you're a religious spirit. You are a religious spirit, you and your silly rules, and you're not about to bring me under that. You just need to go ahead and get with the program. Don't you know you're free? You think, who are you talking to, Jeff? And the imaginary person on the front row over here. It's just a, it's, and, and, and they despise them. They look down on them. They actually look down on the person who doesn't feel released to eat that meat. Now, the response for the other person, what is the negative potential for the fragile conscience? The negative potential for the fragile conscience is to condemn the free. Paul says that. He says, let not the one who abstains from eating meat pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So Paul is in essence telling both of them, you better do an attitude check with each other. You cannot look down in haughtiness or arrogance on the fragile conscience if you're free. And if you are fragile, you can't go home and judge the person who's free. Friends, listen, human nature hasn't changed much. We don't really, in our, in our environment, in our culture, we don't really fight over people eating meat anymore. But we've got our own list, don't we? I mean, it could be the way somebody dresses. Well, you can't wear that to the house of God. Well, I'm free. I'm modest. I'm covered up. I may not be dressed up, but I'm covered. We have it. This is the house of the Lord. Now, some of this is generational because I'm I'm right now I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. You feel free, whoever you are, to be offended right now because we all think we've got it right. Well, I don't like that kind of music. You know, bless God, that doesn't honor the Lord. What is going on? I remember somebody walking into Meadow Baptist Church 20 years ago 
And we were the, one of the first independent Baptist churches at that time to have drums. I wasn't even the pastor. I was a junior staff member. And I remember a guy walking in. And I was on the front row. It was like two seconds before church started. And he walked in front of the drums and he turned around and looked at me like he had lasers coming out of his eyes. Smoke was pouring out of his ears. And he said, what is this? Some kind of rock and roll band? And I thought to myself, hey, I didn't say it, but I almost wish I should have. But I, I was learning Romans 14. So I kept my mouth shut. But I thought to myself, well, which one is in the Bible, the organ or the drums? <laughs> the drums, just in case you don't know. So you, you, you can, you, percussion is there, but, but that's the tradition of this gentleman. He was so incensed that we would exercise the freedom to let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so you've got this back and forth. It could be all of the things. I don't want to run down an, a long, boring list. What I would encourage you to do is search your own heart. Because that's really what this is about. What do you have a hard time accepting that others have the freedom to do when you could never have the freedom to do that? And friends, we have to go there if we're going to have healthy relationships with each other. You are allowed to disagree. Their freedom does not uh, condemn your standard. Your standard can be pure and honest and holy before the Lord, as we're about to find out. And the fact that they don't approve of your standard or practice your standard doesn't make your standard any less significant. What makes it insignificant is if you judge them because they don't hold your standard. Y'all following me? I told you I've been up all night. I hope I'm making sense here. Let's go down into verse number four. Look how Paul sums it up. He talks about man's denunciation versus God's declaration. Here it is. This really settles it if we will be obedient to the faith. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now let me clarify something here. None of us has the allowance to disregard what is clearly written in Scripture. We don't get to say, well, I choose not to obey that because I'm free. No, that's sin. When you violate clearly written Scripture, that's not freedom, that's rebellion. And so we're not talking about what is clear in Scripture. We're talking about these things that aren't specified in Scripture. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord actually looks at me. And he says about that tendency in my heart maybe to judge somebody. He says, watch it. Who do you think you are? That's what's being asked in verse 4. Who do you think you are judging your brother or your sister? He says, that, that servant can only be judged by his or her master. And last time I checked, I'm not the master. You're not the master. And so, therefore, we're not qualified to judge other people in these matters of difference. And so what he says is this. He says, leave him or her to the Lord. It's exactly what he says in verse 4. He says, you don't need to give an opinion on their life. You don't need to render a verdict on their life. You don't need to approve. You don't need to endorse. You don't need to condemn. You don't need to reject. You actually just let them stand before their own master, and their master, God, is well able to keep them from falling. And so it actually frees us up. A key to being happy in the kingdom is to turn in your badge. You are no longer patrolling the streets of Christian town. You are not the sheriff. You are not the fruit inspector. You actually set yourself free when you set others free. You just say, God, 
I'm not sure I agree with that, but I'm glad it's not my responsibility to render a verdict. They're all yours. I'm going to have a great day in spite of that. And literally, I'm going to tell you something. The reason why so many Christians aren't enjoying their own experience with the Lord and why they've stagnated in their Christian life is because they spend a lot of emotional energy, a lot of mental energy, a lot of inward resources inspecting other people and declaring, you know, red flag, green flag, red flag, green flag, red flag. It's like you're in the, um, you know, some kind of soccer field mentality. And listen, it's not about you, you, you sending a warning or you rendering a verdict. You go free. Live your life for Jesus. And in these matters that aren't specified in Scripture, as you set others free, you're actually showing honor to the Lord who's able to make them stand, and you're actually showing love to them. You're allowing their trustworthy Heavenly Father to shepherd them in that area. But there is still something inside of us that says, yeah, I get all that, man. Thanks, appreciate that, Jeff. Sounds like a big kumbaya moment. But Jeff, I actually, I'm just going to tell you, I'm actually right about these issues. (laughs) They're wrong. I'm right. So I already know that. You're telling me I can't do anything about it. Well, hold on a second. You may not be as right as you think you are. So let's watch this. Go down into verses 5 through verse 9. Paul's going to illustrate this. I love the fact that when he gives theology, he also gives a practical illustration that enables us to, to see it a little more clearly. So he's going, to, he's going to give you two more examples here. He's already dealt with this issue of the diet, but he's going to come back. He's circling back, but before he does it, look in verse number five. He gives us two opposing views concerning the days, the days of the week. Look at this, verse five at the beginning. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to answer inwardly when I ask you this question. What is the holiest day of the week? What's the holiest day of the week? Some of us want to say, don't answer out loud. You see, this goes all the way back to the, the ancient church. A lot of these people were saved out of Judaism. They, they met it through Judaism. They came to faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they became uh, Jewish Christians. And so the Sabbath was the centerpiece of their religious expression as Jews. And so all of a the sudden, they are now in fellowship with Gentile Christians who couldn't care less about the Sabbath. And they're all going to church together. I mean, if the, if the potluck dinner wasn't a big enough issue, now you've got fights over the Sabbath days. And Paul says this. He says, there's a certain type of Christian that believes, and he's referring to the Sabbath here, that the Sabbath is the most important day of the week. Then there's another type of Christian who just sees every day as the same. So I'm going to tell you, this culturally might be a challenge for us. I think most of us were raised to to really make Sunday special. And I think it should be special because it's a great day to gather, but we were actually taught that it's more special. And so very subtly, Sunday became a day where we behaved better. We wore different clothes than we wear the rest of the week. Um, we, We are more polite Uh, We want to be really holy from Saturday night until Sunday afternoon, (laughs) right? You modify your behavior on Saturday because you got to go to church Sunday morning. And so we can get turned around thinking that Sunday is the most important day. And quite frankly, 
Don't get mad at me. Don't write me nasty emails. You, you can't support that scripturally. And yet there's, I would say that I actually still feel that way, even though I know it's non-biblical. I still feel like Sunday's my favorite day of the week. It's the most special day. It's the day where I get to serve the Lord. It's the day where I get to see the saints of God. It's the day where we come together in power and worship. And I love Sunday, so it feels more special. That's fine. It's fine if it feels special to you. But do you judge other Christians who don't revere Sunday like you revere Sunday? Because Paul's talking about you in Romans 14 if you do. He says there's a type of person that loves one day of the week more than another, and there's a type of person that thinks all the days are the same. So he hits the days, and then he goes back to diet. At the end of verse 6, again, he mentions the one who eats the meat versus the one who abstains from eating the meat. Okay, we've already covered all of that, but here's why both groups of people can be right. They actually view everything completely opposite of each other, but Paul is about to say, yeah, but if they do this one thing, they're both right. So what is that one thing? Look at verse number six in the beginning and then later in verse number six. Both groups are doing what they do, are refraining from doing what they refrain from doing, and they're doing it in honor of the Lord. He says it once, then he says again, in honor of the Lord. He says it a third time, in honor of the Lord. And then he mentions giving thanks to God, and then in honor of the Lord again, and giving thanks to God. So wait a minute, what does this mean? It means although their actions are completely different, their motivation is exactly the same. The, the guy who doesn't want to eat the meat and who loves the Sabbath day, that guy is doing that because he really wants to honor the Lord, and that helps him to express his honor and love unto the Lord. And the, and the Father is pleased with that. The Lord says, look at that. He is abstaining from things that violate his conscience because he feels that's the best way to honor me on this issue. And he is reverencing the Sabbath as the, as the day of rest where I get his full attention. And he's given me thanks for that. And the Father says, I love that about you. I accept that expression of your worship. And then the Father says, and you, you over there, you who's been eating chicken wings all day, and you who had two hamburgers, and you who had the lamb chops, and you had the, the, the turkey, and you, you are, you're a, a carnivore. And you do it, and every time you do it, you lift it up to him and you say, thank you, Father, for the delicious meat. And the Father says, I love you for that. I love your heart that whatever you eat or drink, you do it as unto me. And, and, and when you don't reverence the Sabbath, it's not because you don't reverence me. It's because in your spirit, and I see your heart, my child, in your spirit, all the days are worthy of me. You give me your all all week long, and so no day is more important than the other, and I receive that from you, my child. Do you see how it works? See, the, we are so oriented to judge the actions, and the Father judges the motivation of the heart. And by the way, um, we aren't qualified to do that. You've never seen a person's motive. You've never seen their motive. You may have suspected their motive or assumed you knew their motive, but you've actually never seen a motive. And the Father sees the motive and the action, and he alone declares acceptable or unacceptable. And so the beauty of this is, if I am on opposite ends of the spectrum with another Christian on an issue that might be controversial, it might be debatable, Scripture doesn't directly address it, that means I can look at that Christian and say, I'm just going to assume that that person is doing what they're doing 
in order to honor the Father, and I don't want to do anything that diminishes that in their life. I don't want to talk them out of it. I don't want to try to get them to be free if they can't be free on this issue. I'm just going to honor them as they honor him. And then at the same time, I don't have to feel guilty because I, I don't agree with them. I don't feel condemned that they abstain from something that maybe I don't abstain in or they get to enjoy something that I don't feel like I can enjoy. There's no competition. And so what happens is there is a mutual respect between the brethren, the brothers and the sisters. And we get to say, though we disagree on what should be done, the thing that we actually agree on is that we both really, really want to honor the Lord. And we both have different ways of expressing that. And we're going to trust that the Father is able to lead each of us, even if in these matters we go in slightly different directions or even exactly opposite directions. We trust that the Father is able to render the proper judgment. Therefore, we don't have to. I want to help you here for a moment. You really need to get some of your life back as you retire from judgmentalism. I mean, God so wants you to have that back. He doesn't like that you're tied in knots over what other Christians do or don't do and it just doesn't jive with you. He doesn't like you wasting mental resources when your mind's supposed to be stayed on him. Emotional resources when you're supposed to love him with all of the heart. He doesn't want you experiencing these frayed relationships year after year after year over stuff that he didn't even think was important enough to give you a command on. That's what's amazing. It's like, Listen, I mean, religion tends to fill in the gaps where God chose to remain silent. Sometimes we're like, well, I know God didn't say it, but I'm here as a spokesman and I'm going to say it for him even though he chose to be silent about it. No, listen, discipline yourself not to fill in the gaps that he intentionally left blank. Just let honor God's silence. And so what you do in those instances is what Paul's about to address, and we'll wrap up on this point here in just a few moments. This inescapable conclusion in verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul says this, none of us lives unto himself and none of us dies unto himself. What does he mean? He means this, in the body of Christ, our lives intersect. Your life intersects with other believers. So we can't make the entire scope of the kingdom orbit around me. The kingdom doesn't orbit around you, even around your most dearly, preciously, strongly held beliefs. If the Bible doesn't address them, you can't make the kingdom of God all about yourself. You don't live under yourself. You don't die under yourself. Ultimately, we all are going to give an account to the Lord himself. And so we, we belong to the Lord both in our lives and in our death. Why is that important? He says that in verse number 8. So whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we belong to the Lord. He's simply illustrating this. He says, from beginning to end, he will always be your master. Let him be the master of others. So in other words, just recognize that what you do and what you say, it can affect other people. So be very careful about your judicial statements. You're you're looking down on those or you're uh, despising others. And ultimately, verse number 9 tells us that Jesus came to earth. He came to earth, and he lived, and he died, so he could be Lord of all. It's, it's just a, I, I think it's, um, 
It's a gentle putting us in our place. It's, it's almost like the Lord is saying, hey, you're so cute. I love you. I see you all stirred up about that, and you, you think you're right, and you're, you're really certain about it. That's just precious. You're awesome. I think you're great. But you know what? Just shh. Yeah, they don't really care what you think. I love you. You're, you're, you're great. But I tell you what, how about you let me, since I'm the Lord, how about you let me handle the people that you disagree with? And you know what's just so good? If you'll just say yes to that, you get some of your life back. You realize you don't have to answer for that person. And then, then the only thing that you've got to do is you've got to say, okay, if I'm going to honor the Lord, I'm also going to want to honor them. What's the best route I can take in this, in this issue to where I esteem this person more important in the moment than myself. I don't assert myself. I don't squash them. I don't despise them. I don't judge them. I don't mock them. I don't talk about them. But I actually just celebrate their freedom in Jesus, and I just go on with my life. It's not that you're indifferent. It just means you know you're not the Lord, and so you leave it alone. You say, well, Jeff, this just sounds elementary. Well, if it's so elementary, why do people struggle with it so much? I mean, frankly, if you're in here tonight and you say, I have never struggled with this, uh, you're probably either being disingenuous or um, you're not paying attention to anything else going on around you. There's always opportunities for this. And the reality is, is that you can get free from it. Um, A begrudging, frustrated, judging heart cannot be a joyful heart. It just can't. So in the moment where I'm fixated on somebody that's not doing things the way I want them to do it, in that moment, I've forfeited my joy. And I won't experience it again until I repent of trying to be the master of another person. And I say, Lord, you take care of it. And immediately joy begins to move in my life again. So let's get down to the very end, verses 10 through 13. Here's the application. Here's where Paul just kind of, and this is the authority of Scripture. This is not my opinion. Here's just where Paul uh, tells us what to do. We'll back it up into verse number five, and here's the first thing we're told to do about these debatable issues, these issues of liberty. Cultivate your own personal consecration. Don't work on them, work on you. Verse number five, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I love it. He just gave you something to do. He said, hey, if you want to work on this debatable issue, here's what I want you to do. I want you to press into me. I want you to pray to me. I want you to listen for my voice, and when I speak, and you really grasp what I'm leading you to do in this area, I want you to be fully convinced that that's the route that you're supposed to be taking. And notice, it's your own mind. Don't let anybody else make up your mind for you. If you have a sensitive, fragile conscience about something that's taboo, something that's debatable, don't let the fact that 99 other people are free in it cause you to say, well, I guess I should be free too, even though inwardly you know you're not free. That, that, that's searing your conscience. That's literally, because one of the ways the Holy Spirit works in our life is he actually works through our own inner voice, our own conscience. And if you make it a habit of hardening your heart or hardening your conscience, you'll get to the point where you are just acting according to the whims of other people, the fear of man, or by your own impulses. So don't quench the Holy Spirit's work in your conscience. Free people want everybody else to be free. And so most of them are well-intending. 
They, they're just like, oh man, relax. The Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't tell you not to eat meat. The Bible doesn't tell you you have to act a certain way on the Lord's day versus all of the other days. Just, just listen, you don't have to dress up for church. You don't have to do this. And yet inwardly you say, yeah, but I, I kind of want to. I kind of feel that's important. And yet you get enough voices telling you to, to violate your conscience and then you give into that. What's happened? You've made their opinion Lord over your life and you're not free anymore. Now you're not only the fragile conscience, now you're actually in bondage to what other people think. And so it's the same way if you're free. This works the other way because listen, fragile people can be intimidated by the freedom of free people. And so fragile people will be like, they, they can do this and they're well-intending. They're very convinced that your freedom should not be your freedom. So they're gonna call you into account. And they're gonna say, you ought not be doing that. You say, well, you know, I've studied this out. The Bible's not exactly clear on this issue, and I really feel the liberty to enjoy the Lord in this way. And I say, yeah, but you shouldn't do that. And they'll quote you their uncle, Deacon Jones, the third pastor removed from the church. They're going to quote you their doctrinal statement, their theological treatise, the church's bylaws. They'll just, they'll saddle you up, and all of a sudden, your freedom, it feels like a 400-pound weight on your back. And they can actually talk you out of your freedom. I'm going to say this. Matter of fact, Paul's going to say it in a minute, so I don't, I don't really have to do it. But it's very important that we protect the voice of the Holy Spirit because he likes to lead us individually. Where the Bible is clear, we're all accountable. Nobody gets to make up their own, you know, subset of obedience to the Bible. You just obey. Where the Bible's clear, if it's a command, you obey it. If it's a prohibition, thou shalt not, you do not do what the Bible says don't do. You don't get to improve upon the God, word of God by, and especially saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but the Holy Spirit's leading me to do this. Oh my goodness. Can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've been in where people have said, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but I really feel led of the Spirit to do this. I always take a step back because lightning's about to fall. I'm like, oh, you are in a bad place, my friend. Let me, let me look at this real quick. Cultivate your own personal consecration. Work harder on you than you work hard on others. Go ahead and just superintend your own soul. Go ahead and just tend to the garden of your own heart. I promise you, it's a full-time job. You, you just won't have anything left over to be inspecting the fruit in somebody else's garden. You just got to take care. And it's just such an awesome thing because you can grow closer to the Lord in that. The second thing, the second application is this. Prioritize relational commitment. This is important. Therefore, Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, let's take the first half of that. He does say, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. But let's take the first one. We're literally commanded to stop judging other people. Stop. Cease and desist. No more. You're not going to taper off from it. It is a stop right now judging others in these matters that are debatable. Stop it. And then, and by the way, that's typically to the weaker brother. If you look back up, it is to the weaker brother that he says, you know, um, don't judge those that are strong. And so now he's, Paul's saying, all right, weaker brother, stop it. You can't do this anymore. But look at what he says to the strong in the second half of verse 13. He says to the strong, I want you to make a decision never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the weaker brother. What does that mean? It means this, just because you have the freedom 
doesn't mean you're entitled to flaunt it in the face of others who don't share that freedom. So I may be free to do a certain thing, but if I am in a fellowship, if I am in relationship with Christians that don't share that freedom, then for me to exercise that freedom in their face not caring what it does to them, not caring that it causes them to struggle, then the last thing I'm doing in that moment is loving them or honoring them. I'm actually saying nobody's going to tell me what to do with my freedom. I don't care if you stand there all day. I'm going to eat this meat in your face. You have your celery. I'm going to have me a pork chop. And, and that's the kind of attitude. It's the kind of arrogance that can find its way into the hearts of those that are free. And Paul says, I want you to make a decision. I want you to be really, really careful not to cause the weaker brother to stumble. He opens that up a little bit more in chapter 15. So he puts the more um, weighty responsibility on the free. He says to the freedom, I expect you to regulate your freedom so it doesn't cause your brother to stumble. Um, verse number, well, let's go to the last point and then we're going to pray and we're going to be cut loose. Always remember this. Here's the third application. First of all, cultivate personal consecration. Second, prioritize your relational commitment to other people. And then thirdly, remember individual accountability. Paul mentions the judgment seat twice in this issue. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. Each of us will give an account of himself, of himself or herself to God. I think it's really interesting that when Paul wants to really break us of our habit of scrutinizing each other, judging each other, trying to make other people do things the way that we do them, Paul says, hey, let me remind you, and here's a real motivator for you. You're actually going to give an account for you and only you at the judgment seat. You're going to stand before Jesus, and you're going to um, have to answer for your life, your decisions, how you lived it out. And you're not going to give an answer for this other person, and they're not going to give an answer for you. And so Paul literally, it, forgive the big word here, but he brings an eschatological element to this issue of liberty. He takes us, es eschatology is the study of future events. And he takes us to the moment in the future where all of us have an appointment with Jesus. And in that appointment, our entire Christian life is going to be evaluated and rewarded. And what Paul is indicating here is that such an important appointment that is out there on the horizon for all of us, Paul is saying, just let that motivate you. So by application, he's saying this again. It's so important that you prepare yourself to give an account for yourself at the judgment seat of Christ that you would be really wise to never again waste time judging somebody else. And again, you have that freedom. There's something in our heart that says, if I'm a really sincere Christian, I need to look out for people who may not be as sincere as I am, and I'm going to kind of help them to be more sincere for Jesus. And we prod them along, and we move them along, and we herd them, and we shove them, and we, we control them. And Paul says, no, you don't want to do that. You actually want to let that Christian go free, and you want to, if necessary, buffet your own body, as Paul said he did. 
Endure your own hardness like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Be steadfast, immovable yourself, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So Paul brings it all back to this individual accountability. And the wake-up moment for me, and I'm done. When this hit me in the late 1990s, two things occurred over a period of just a handful of months. I started experiencing deeper levels of repentance for my judgmentalism. I had to literally work my way out of legalism. I didn't have anybody teaching me this stuff at the time. I was listening secretly to the the CDs of Charles Swindoll and The Grace Awakening. I listened to that CD series. You ought to get that book, by the way, Charles Swindoll, The Grace Awakening. If you struggle with this stuff, get that book and read it and read it again. And what happened is I realized, oh my goodness, I just repented at this level and thought I was free. But now the Holy Spirit's saying, no, there's still more repentance needed. And still, and eventually, I had this liberating couple of months where I got completely free. So here we are almost 20 years later. And I can tell you this. I have no impulse to judge anybody in matters that are debatable. Zero. I actually experience deep, deep soul pleasure even when I disagree with them to say, whew, hallelujah, they're not my responsibility in this issue. Now, if they ask me my opinion, I'm happy to give it, but that rarely happens. And so I don't offer or assert my opinion. I'm going to tell you something, the joy and the freedom and the refreshing that comes when you are delivered from having a judgmental attitude on others, there are very few things in the kingdom that are more precious to us than that. So I'd like to pray for us tonight. And I'd like for you to just bow your head. Just humor me here for a minute. If you wrestle with a less than Christ-like attitude with those who are on the opposite side of the fence, if you're free and you wrestle with those fragile consciences and you just always assume they're religious spirits, or if you're fragile and you always look at these liberal Christians that indulge themselves in things that you don't think they should be doing, and you're wrestling with your attitude on that, let me pray for you right now. So, Father, thank you that you've removed this from our workload. Thank you that you have not assigned us this job. And so, Lord, by faith... I bless in the name of Jesus those with a fragile conscience to have the power just to let some things go when they disagree with the free. Holy Spirit, quicken the ability in every fragile conscience to love the free even when they disagree with them, to honor the free and to believe that those free people are just honoring you in their freedom. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless the free to not be haughty and arrogant towards the fragile. I bless the free in the name of Jesus with the power to forego their liberty so that they don't cast a stumbling block in front of the fragile. And I pray, Father, that they will never feel like they've lost anything when they choose not to exercise a freedom because that best serves the weaker brother. 
And so, Lord, deepen our love for each other. Deepen our love for each other to the point where relationships are never again lost over debatable matters. Make us truly like Jesus, who always went for the heart. Help us, Lord, to be like him. And we ask it in his name, Father. Amen and amen.